0: Welcome everybody, this is Derek Bodner, joined this week once again by Rich Hoffman on this week's episode of the Sixers Beat, a part of the CLNS Media Network. Real quick before we begin, because I never, ever, ever ask this at the beginning of a podcast, but if you can, please go rate us and leave a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate it. Uh, We always would like to reach more Sixers fans, and you can help us do that. How you doing, Rich?
1: I'm good, man. I was at a 975 Fan Fest doing a little work for an article that'll be on the Athletic Philly in a few days. And first off, I mean it was a, it was a really good turnout for them. They had uh, Alan Iverson and Tobias Harris there. I I just would, was kind of struck though by the amount of Sixers jerseys there. Yeah. And of course there were uh you know, there were Dallas Sucks chants. The the Eagles are are starting up there. I think a lot of people believe they're going to have a good season. I certainly do, and they're kind of, you know, I, I still think that they're king in this town. I don't think that will ever change, but it does just strike you how popular the Sixers are right now. It's, you know, and I, I think this this could be a discussion in general just just about how popular the NBA is with younger people and and how their stars are marketable and everything, but. Man, there are just a lot of Sixers jerseys out there and a lot of chance. And, of course, when Iverson goes up there today, everybody was was just going nuts.
0: Yeah, well, I will say, I think while the, the Eagles will have a good season um, and are in the running, would you say the Sixers or the Eagles have a better chance of making a championship game or a championship series?
1: I think you'd have to say the Sixers because just because the Eagles play in a sport where you play once and you, you're out if you, you don't have a good day. The, uh, and just, just looking, you know, you don't want to get too into the NFL here on this podcast, but it's going to be hard for them. The NFC is, is pretty good. There's a lot of good teams. You know, Dallas is pretty good in their division. And then, you know, you have teams like the Rams and the, uh, uh the Saints and all these other teams. The Sixers pretty much, and look, I, I'm leaving the door open that some team could, uh, surprise us like the Bucks last year, but it just seems like the Bucks are really their main competition to make it to the finals this year.
0: Yeah. No, I think, I think the, uh, the nature of the two sports and especially of the postseason runs favors, uh, favors the Sixers in the, the odds department. But I, I mean, this team really, it really does have a chance and that has to have the town excited. Like you said, it will always be an Eagles town first and foremost, especially when the team is as good as they are and relatively recently off of a Super Bowl run. So they will, they will dominate the airwaves, but the Sixers are, are a very close second, um, outside of some Gabe Kapler complaining and some rightful complaining about the way that Philly season has turned out. <sighs> so far, and ooh, the other night, I'll tell you what, I went to bed when it was seven nothing or not went to bed. I stopped paying attention to it when it was seven nothing. I was stunned when I woke up. Uh, but this is not the podcast for that. So let's dive into Re-
1: the Wait, real quick. What do you make of uh 538's odds? Have you seen those?
0: I have. Let me pull them back up just so I'm not speaking too stupidly.
1: The Sixers are first. They're first yeah. for the Eastern Conference. They're just first for the NBA. And I don't know uh you know how the Clippers are kind of ranked so low and maybe 538 kind of has an explanation about that, but I looked at that and that was uh that was pretty eye-opening
0: yeah fifty four percent chance of making the finals. The next highest team is the Rockets at thirty four percent, which I think is is pretty surprising that they are the top in the Western Conference and then a twenty six percent chance of winning the finals, which again is the top in the in all of the NBA, which <sighs> <laughs> Does that make you nervous? Like if I were a fan and we're removed from being a fan to some degree now. But whenever – I don't want to say – it's a, it's, a, it's a really weird saying because you should – like especially in the NBA where the system, as we just sort of alluded to, favors the strong teams. It favors the well-built teams. You should want to be the best team. But being sort of that team out in front, it is a very different position. Some Something where nobody – very few people living this podcast, you would have had to be there – um for that run in the early 80s to have experienced that with this team. Certainly that wasn't the case in 01 in the Iverson years, not when you had Shaq and Kobe out there in the Western Conference. That Shaq and Kobe team, who I believe was a perfect – uh correct? I think the game one of that 01 finals was the first game they lost. Yep. So the Sixers have never really been the odds aren't favorite in anything really um, outside of that one year in the lottery, but never in the form of a championship prediction. So this is very uncharted territories, and I'm not 100% sure how I feel about it.
1: And it just seems weird with their offseason, which we've talked about a lot. It, it, it's controversial. I mean, it seems like they're, they're doubling down on a strength and kind of forgetting about a potential weakness where, you know, I, I do think there is some room for interpretation to, uh, if they got better or if maybe they're not quite as good because of the, the offensive issues, whatever. And, and to just see 538 say, Oh yeah, they're the favorites to win the title. It's, uh, yeah, I would even say for us as analysts, I think we want to be right and, you know, we don't want to seem like homers if, uh, this whole thing blows up in uh, our faces. But yeah, it seems like the numbers, whatever they have are suggesting that the Sixers are going to be pretty damn good. And I've seen a lot of people, by the way, take that, uh, over under that 54 and a half, 55 number and a lot of people, like Tom Haberstrow, I think was one pretty confidently taking the over on that. It's, uh, the, the level of confidence in this team. We'll see if, uh, if that translates when there are kind of more predictions and more people are picking in, uh, in the lead up to the season, but it seems like some people are pretty confident in this team.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and betting the over on, on something like that is always tough because you never know like, who's going to be healthy? How are they going to rest coming down a stretch? How are they going to rest in the middle of the season with Joel and Embiid? Like, you just don't know how long is it going to take for this team to reach its peak with all the moving parts that it has on it. So it's hard to really, like, you know, they're going to be a good team. You hope they're going to be hitting their stride in the playoffs, but how many games are they going to win? Part of that might depend on how hard they're pushed, how much they care about playoff positioning, um, and what what the other extenuating circumstances are. So it's... It's hard to say. Uh, I would never give betting advice, but I think there's a team that is capable of winning more than 55 games, the question is whether or not they will. But anyway, moving on. It, it is a strange spot to be in in terms of being the darling of at least some analysts and or analytical models' minds. Not not territory we are comfortable or familiar
1: with. It just feels like we're walking on eggshells a little bit.
0: Yes. Yes. Yes, it does. Um, all right. So the only news, the only flippant thing happening in Sixers Lane, out of outside of Mike Scott living the best life and enjoying his summer to an immense degree, um, and, and God bless. It seems like there are very few, very rarely are there athletes who embrace and are embraced by Philadelphia as quickly as Mike Scott has, um, and he continues to do so everywhere from handing out ice cream to to meeting fans in very random places. But he is having having the best of summers.
1: Speaking of that. We, yep. And we were kind of talking about this. The, uh, Mike Scott as a basketball player is not very interesting. He no, is a spot up three point shooter. Yes, we know what he is. But man, the extracurriculars he brings he's
0: and fantastic.
1: his personality is just, he's, I think we said this before the, you know, the hive and everything kind of blew up uh, around him, but he just, he just makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> he just says funny stuff and, uh, Obviously, he's, he's really tough. What was the thing? I, I guess he said the I ain't no bitch thing after coming to Joel's defense. Was that right?
0: I, I gotta be honest. At the, um, at the, the, the meet and greet, the, the breakfast with Mike Scott, I forget exactly what the context was. I do remember sitting there and saying, you know what? That felt a little bit forced. That felt like Mike Scott knew, Hey, this is my phrase. I gotta get in here once in the m- middle of this press conference, m- middle of this media gathering. Wasn't the most natural, was not the most effective. Ain't no bitch I've heard from Mike, Mike Scott.
1: Yeah, but I'm talking about the first one where he actually, oh. he said it and...
0: Yes, it was when Mike, when Joel rifled the ball at, uh, who was it? Was it Westbrook? Oh,
1: that's did he right. Get in that- no, Bledsoe, right? Bledsoe,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: One of, uh, one of Embiid's three fracases this year that he, uh, he got other people mad at him. But, uh, what was
0: it, Bledsoe threw a ball at Embiid and then Mike Scott threw it back? Is that how it went? <laughs> I,
1: don't, I don't remember. I forget. Whatever. But anyway, Mike Scott has – it seems like he is absolutely living his best life, really kind of enjoying his time in the city and in a way that I don't think I've ever really seen
0: yeah. from a,
1: a player kind of of his caliber. Yep.
0: All right. So the other – the the actual news outside of Mike Scott that has come out that I was, I was getting to before we went on a – a five minute Mike Scott Hive, uh, discussion. Ben Simmons, another video of Ben Simmons shooting jumpers, which I know I, when I brought up this topic before the podcast started, like when we we're on the phone talking before we started recording, not, not phone, we don't anymore record this podcast through a phone, but when we we're talking to each other through computer headsets, the audible groan coming from Rich Hoffman's microphone, you should have heard that because this is not Rich's favorite topic to talk about. Uh, I think offseason Instagram stories are wearing on us all. Even though it is a little bit easier to get you know I was asked this, this this question in a Q&A the other day. And it was are you more encouraged by Ben's Instagram videos over this summer or Markell's last summer? And the answer is pretty easy to me because in those kind of questions I always go to upside. And if Ben's progression into a jump shooter which won't happen in one offseason But if what we are seeing are signs of the first steps of that, then Ben has a chance of being a top five to ten player in the NBA, whereas Markel could have been a really good player, maybe even an all-star, if that jumper came back to him. So irrespective of what you thought the odds were of either of those two situations, Ben's more exciting because the upside is very significantly higher if that does happen. So we got some more, and this was, a again, a five-on-five pickup game. There seem to be he's pulling up off the dribble a little bit. Here, here here's what I'll say. And I, again, I understand the fans are very excited about this. Um, I, I'm, I'm almost guarantee you, Rich and I will take the somewhat skeptical approach of we want to see it in games when they matter, wh- which I don't think is necessarily like a, a, a talk radio take. I think there's reason to, to think that games are different. You know, I think obviously the defensive intensity intensity is going to be different. Now, he's playing against a lot of NBA players out here in these five-on-five pickup games. But the defensive att- attention to detail and intensity is nowhere near the same. But also because I think a lot of Ben's problem is confidence. And how is he going to react in a real NBA game when he's missed five jumpers in a row? How is he going to react when he's missed five jumpers in a row and, and Joel kind of gives him a scowling look after the sixth one? Is he still going to keep taking those shots? How's it going to happen if he has one of those games where he misses five in a row, stops taking them? How's he going to react the next game? Is he going to come out and take those shots again? Like it's a lot – the the threshold for confidence is a lot lower to take them in these no-pressure pickup games than there are – than there will be in even regular season games, much less playoff games, much much less championship games. So – you know, I guess what I'll say on these, first of all, he's clearly been working on it this summer and that's, that's the most important takeaway. You're not going to see a, a miss jumper in any of these videos. If, if you do, Chris Johnson isn't doing his job. So whether, you know, I see some comments on Reddit and on, on various comment sections. You know, I don't care what the form looks like as long as the ball is going in. Well, that, that doesn't make any sense because you're only going to see the ball going in during these, these, these offseason videos. You have to look at the form. So what I think about the form, you know, I think there's less, especially on this last video, I think there's less like sideways drift. Like he would spin mid-air and he would do that on pretty much every jumper he ever takes. I saw a little less of that in these videos. You know, I think the pull-up motion, the footwork to get into these shots is a little cleaner. Only a little cleaner. I think there's still stuff you could clean up. But more specifically, I think it's more natural. And like he's not like every step into a jump shot motion he had before was very mechanical and thought out and rigid and it seems like it's flowing a little bit more naturally and i think that's helping some of the timing in his shot but again it's very tough because all we ever see we only see the good sample we don't see any of the bad sample and maybe with ben simmons that's different because there just was never any good sample out there like no matter how many games you parse through there wasn't a good sample so if we have any good sample it's something to be encouraged by this summer but we have to really see we have to see a first of all a sizable sample and second of all the entire sample before we really know what kind of progress he's made but it does look to me like maybe it's a little more fluid a little more natural like i said i don't think the footwork is cleaned up as much as it is less thought less mechanical but i think there's some progress going there
1: Chris Johnson, he certainly sets fire to the internet whenever he releases one of these things because, and I think part of that is what time of the year it is. In August, NBA storylines are generally pretty stupid. I think from Chris Johnson's workouts, just from the same pickup games, there was the the Devin Booker and Joakim Noah doubling argument, and it's just (laughs)
0: like
1: it's just like who gives a shit. Uh, I don't really care either way.
0: Uh. Also, book, you might want to work on reacting to double teams. No, no, don't,
1: don't have like a take. It. I, I don't care. It doesn't <laughs> matter. It's unbelievable. So, <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I thought, uh, besides, uh, I'm watching the video right now. He's dapping up Rich Paul. So that's, that's something I guess. I don't know. I, uh, you know, kind of what we have talked about before. It seems like he's more on balance. There were a few more kind of pull up jumpers. Those are ones that I like to see in general more than the, uh, the fadeaways, uh, from about 12 feet. So yeah. And, and yeah, it, it looked a little more compact, but yeah, I think, you know, I, I echo what you say, but I, I just, I, I'm going to, I'm going to try to not have a major reaction every time Chris Johnson releases one of these. Well, uh, if
0: we could get any kind of other information to talk about, I would love to, but it's just not out there.
1: That's fine. The- <laughs> we, we, uh,
0: we could go watch some of, uh, uh, Corkmaz's games, maybe. That's, that's about the only other thing we have.
1: He is playing in the World Championships, I guess? Yes. I miss, uh, I miss watching Dario play overseas. That, that, this was, this was his time of the year, him and, uh, Bogdanovich. But, uh, yeah, I don't, man, I don't really have much of a reaction. It seems like, uh, like, like you said, He's uh he's at least making some progress on the form but you know it doesn't really mean anything until we uh we see it in a live game. But I mean, you know, it seems like he's getting some good work in. He's obviously he uh he passed on the World Cup to uh to kind of work out here and it it seems to me like that's the right call.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like the form is fixed. Like I I mean the the the, the drifting in the shot I think is improving, which is good. The elbow is not, which is not great. I think he's more frequently timing it correctly where he's not releasing the ball on the way down, which is good. Um, So there's some improvements, some things that are not being improved. His footwork still seems, like I said, it's quicker and less deliberate, but I think if you really look at it, it doesn't look like his alignment is always correct. Um, He still seems like he's going to have a lot to work on over the coming years, don't expect a 35% three point shooter out of the gate. We'll see. We'll
1: I also wonder it. what the protocol is in these scrimmages because he's going against some really good defenders who look like they're not trying at all. Yeah. It's, but he's, he's shooting over, I think in this video, I'm looking at Justice Winslow, Taj Gibson, really, you know, very good defenders. And I, I wonder if that's part of this where they're, uh, their thing is okay if you drive on us maybe we'll we'll tighten up a little bit but hey if you want to work on some some pull-up jumpers we'll kind of let you do that which right. uh i mean that, that's cool i just i i would like to know how it uh it it works it's almost like a comedian working on material or something like that here if you want to screw up in this way go ahead yeah maybe that's a story for somebody to write at some point
0: eh, we'll see if only if only there were any reporters that we know um so I guess, you know, this is another one I was asked during my Q and A. And it's, it's sort of like the, the pairings, the staggered pairings that Brett Brown has, has always used over the the two years where he's had Embiid and Simmons. You know, what do we think these could look like? So I think one of the things, like the first answer to me is, is Al Horford the backup center during the regular season? Now, I think everyone assumes he will be in the playoffs, uh, when the, the rotations shrink and the games matter the most. But does Kylo Quinn get some of those regular season backup minutes, keeping out Al at the the power forward spot where he reportedly prefers, or do they go with what's probably their best lineup and sliding out of the center? Um Like, do they do that right from the jump, or do they kind of conserve Horford a little bit? I don't know. We'll see. But I think that's sort of the first question you have to ask. Yeah. And then I think the pairings sort of flow from
1: there. Yeah, and I think there's some speculation about whether – They'll save the owl at backup five for the playoffs, kind of like Golden State wouldn't play their death lineup a lot during the regular season. But they also had the luxury of being able to kill people pretty much regardless how they uh,
0: – And they had th- – like they've they've had years to evaluate that death lineup too. Like they know it works.
1: Yeah, that's true. I think they were – when they first kind of stumbled upon it, that might have been the year they won 73 games. They might have been play- – I – I forget the narrative on that and exactly how that played out, but I seem to remember that they kind of stumbled upon it and they ran it in the regular season. Yeah, that's the should first. have been
0: 72. The Sixers should have won that game.
1: That game was an all-timer. I, I don't know if I was sitting next to you during that game, but when, uh I guess it was Ish, got the steal at the end and, and dunked it and tied the game up, I've never seen an arena with just the most confused excitement— You'll ever see people were, were losing it. <laughs> it would, I mean, it would have been the biggest upset in NBA history. The Sixers yeah, won, have
0: been.
1: Sixers one ten. 10. They won 73. I, I can guarantee you there's never been a bigger difference in, in win loss record. If, uh, if the Sixers were able to pull that off. Yeah, that was hilarious. I've never seen it. <laughs> the Warriors, by the way, especially Draymond. They kind of stopped trying in the second half, understandably. <laughs> it was, uh, it was pretty funny. So yeah, that's the first question. And I guess the, the answer there is how serviceable O'Quinn is. I think the Sixers would like to, uh, to play O'Quinn, right? Because it, it also gives you the benefit of a couple things. One, you get to watch Horford and Embiid play together more. And to me, that's more interesting than playing Horford at backup five, because I think that's just going to work. I think that's – that. there's not going to be – I think there's going to be less of an adjustment period for that. And it's it's almost more important for Embiid and Horford to figure out how to play together because that's what it's going to be, you know, 92-92, three minutes left, as Brett says. So that's the first question. I think another question I have, are they going to use the same substitution patterns where they –
0: Embiid comes out at the –
1: Yep. Seven-minute mark and yeah, yeah. Are, are they going to be this quick, staggered uh rotation? And, and the question there I have is, are they going to try and pair somebody with Embiid like they did with J.J. Reddick? I don't know. Those two complement each other so well. And I just wonder, I, I think the, the logical options are Tobias and Josh Richardson. Are they going to try and find a a pairing there to uh to develop a sort of chemistry? And when I did this experiment or this post a couple weeks ago, I ended up deciding on tethering Tobias and Joel's minutes together, and and trying to figure out a pairing. But I I do wonder if they're going to scrap the that whole format maybe because they have new players now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I think we look at Tobias first of all. I think, regardless of what happens in the regular season, when the the playoffs roll around, Horford's your backup five, and I think he and Simmons will be tied pretty closely together because I think I think that's how you're going to build a defense without Embiid that's going to be able to compete in the playoffs. Um, you start with Horford and and Simmons, sort of as your four or five defensively. Let them pretty much switch anything on the court. And still be able to keep a rim protector in, in Al. Hello. Um, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> keep a rim protector in Al on in Al on the floor. So someone who can both switch, spread the floor offensively, and then also protect the rim. So I think those two will be tied when the playoffs roll around. But you would think that that's where maybe Tobias will be on that staggered unit because he could end up being your best scoring option to keep that offense afloat without a natural, you know, sort of high usage force. So like Embiid's on the court, he's going to be your focal point. When he's off the floor, you need someone who can sort of fill into that role. And that might be where you need Tobias to sort of lift that group. So I'm wondering if maybe Richardson is the one that you pair with Embiid. And then Simmons, Horford, and Tobias are sort of like the other main staggered group. But I could see it going either way because theoretically – And I have to look at the numbers. I feel like Tobias sort of struggled when he was paired with Embiid last year. But I feel like Tobias should be the kind of of sort of like pseudo-power forward in this role who can play alongside Embiid. Like Embiid should be able to get him open shots. He should be able to space the floor. Um, He can run a little pick-and-roll two-man game with him. Like he should – he can move off the ball. He should be the type that would succeed with Embiid. So I could see it going either way. But I do wonder if they're going to want to have Tobias on that other grouping. With Simmons and Horford, because he could he could keep the offense going.
1: Yeah, I think when the Sixers are going to be at their best, too, I think you want Tobias playing at least some of his minutes at power forward. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that'll be. I, I I bet Brett Brown and and Sergio Oliva and and all of the analytics team they're they're going to work on that pretty hard. They spend a lot of time on trying to figure out how to rotate these guys. What uh I think, as far as the bench is concerned, the the only thing that I feel confident saying is that Mike Scott will get the backup power power forward minutes.
0: Yeah, and then sure. I don't. But even even that question gets muddied because the Sixers have so many players who could theoretically play power forward, in you know Horford and Simmons and like you just have and, and then Tobias. You have a lot of players who could theoretically defend power forward. So depending on which ones you keep out, like. It's, 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 I agree with you. I think, I think Mike Scott will be the first player off the bench, assuming Kylo Quinn isn't Embiid's replacement. Mike Scott will be the first player off the bench, mostly because I think he's, he's the best bench player that they have.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's a good point though, in that if like, let's say Zaire or Matisse, if those guys beat out Ennis, I, I also think, you know, as much as I agree with you that Scott is there, best power forward, if they beat out him, the Sixers could easily just slide Ben Simmons yep. up to guarding power forwards. And also if, you know, it's a lineup where Tobias is playing as well, I would argue it's, uh, yeah, that's probably where he's best at defending people. I actually talked to him for my story today on the athletic. And he says, I asked him the question if he has, uh, talked to the Sixers at all about guarding threes. Cause When you just look at this supersized lineup, that's one of the questions in that, you know, can he guard the the wings? Because obviously there's, there's really no, no big guys for him to guard with Embiid and Horford there. And he says that's one of the things he's been working on the most this offseason. So it's clear that, uh, he's going to get a lot of minutes doing that. But if, uh, if Zaire or Matisse were able to show that juice and, uh, you know, flash and show that the six, show the Sixers that they can contribute, I don't think Scott's job is necessarily completely safe either if he somehow takes a step back from last year.
0: Yep. No, he has to be the best reserve to be the, to be the first reserve. And I guess what I mean by that is his position or, or, or skill set. Oh, his skill set will always be valued, but he, he he's not going to get that first spot because of a, a positional reason.
1: Yeah. I, um, and by the way, I, th- I think he will. <laughs> like, I, I, do. I don't, I don't I do. think he's going to, all of a sudden forget how to shoot the basketball and he's yeah, I I think he's probably their best their best bench player. But yeah, it's you know, and then there's the, the backup point guard question too. Who is it? Is it strictly Howell Neto or, or Trey Burke or could Richardson get some backup point guard minutes? Could uh I'm trying to think, are there any other options for them to to fill those minutes? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. No, I mean it, it, the the Burke Neto one will be interesting to watch play out because they're so different in how they play. Um You know, I think I, I we've said this before. I have more confidence in Neto. Uh there's certainly more variability in Burke's game and maybe he will have more nights where he he really gives you a spark off the bench, but he'll also have more nights where he takes something off the table. Um but watching that play out will be fun. I the Richardson thing, you know, if if they bust that out and again, like it's not like we'll never see Al Horford at the five in the regular season, even if they want to keep Kyle O'Quinn playing to sort of preserve Horford a little bit. Like you'll still see him at center over the course of the 82 game regular season schedule. Same thing with Richardson. Like even if they don't, even if they come out and they play a a traditional backup point guard, you'll still see him run the show from time to time because you want to evaluate what you have and what works and whatnot. Um, But I wonder if we'll see more of that or that more regularly at least when the playoffs roll around too.
1: Speaking of uh, a Zaire, I think he said he's up to two hundred and twelve pounds right now. I saw him. There there was video. We didn't go, but the uh there was some video of him at the the shore tour where he was giving an interview, and he's all the way. He's up to two hundred and twelve pounds. That means he's gained fifty pounds from his lowest time, which was I don't know eleven months.
0: Or no, not not less even less than that. Nine, nine months or ago. ten months ago. Yeah.
1: He seems like he's, uh, he's gotten everything back. I, I do think, uh, just listening to him talk, it seems like him and Thiebel, they have pretty realistic goals for the year. They're just trying to contribute somehow, just trying to get into a complimentary role this year. And that's, you know, I think that's good in that you don't have kind of a, a fault situation where you have the number one overall pick who needs to get minutes to justify. They're standing, you know, it's, it just seems like they, when you pick in the, in the teens and in the twenties, and you have these guys who kind of project as complimentary players, there's almost less pressure on them. And it it seems like they, they, I, I, I'm, I look forward to watching those guys this year because it it doesn't seem like the Sixers completely, they probably need one of them to contribute at some point, but it's not a case of where if Markel Fultz isn't showing that he, uh, he can take over games, it's like this black cloud hanging over the team.
0: Yeah. And it's also, you know, both of them sort of have their swing sets, their swing skills, um, as, as shooting and improving, you know, shooting off the dribble, shooting on the move, shooting off a catch, all things you can do pretty much in an open gym. So if they come out and they're not getting, you know, immediate minutes right out of the gate on a team that's expected to win mid-50s games and contend for a run to the the NBA Finals, it's not the end of the world. They can still improve, whereas some other years we might not have felt that way. So I think it's a good position both for the team because I think they do have real skill sets, real dimensions they can add to the team in their, their defense, Zaire on the ball, Matisse off the ball. But they also have skill sets they need to improve upon that they can do that even if they're not playing twenty minutes a night, so I think it's a a, a sort of win win. Uh So we'll see that that's another you know interesting dynamic to play out because once you get past Mike Scott and I guess James Ennis and whoever wins the backup point guard tournament, there is still an opening for to find roles off that bench. Uh, and once you start getting further down there, there's I mean there 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 are battles to be won, and if one of these two. Pops a little bit more than expected, whether that's right out of the gate or whether that's, you know, coming into January, February, down the stretch, you could see them jump a spot or two in the rotation.
1: Speaking of swing skill, I think our uh, our little term there has gone mainstream.
0: Uh, our little term—that's all you, buddy. Yeah, that's all you.
1: The this is
0: an old was was this Liberty Ballers? Yeah, that you it, wrote that at okay. Yeah,
1: MCW, and
0: I, I wasn't sure if we were going all the way back to depressed fan era, Rich Hoffman.
1: Oof. Man, that is – we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of that for sure. Well,
0: the great thing about that is you can Google and you can't even find those articles you wrote because that site is gone.
1: Yeah. The swing skill has gone mainstream though, man. I I see a lot of draft analysts use it all all the time. Can I ask you a question though? I do think swing skill 85% of the time is shooting. Oh, sure. In today's NBA. Yep. I I think it's, it's notable when it's not shooting. When you don't really see too many players, oh, their ball handling is their swing skill. Right. I guess sometimes their passing can be if it's kind of a gunner type who we know can get buckets and, or if it's just a generally well-rounded offensive player and their defense is subpar and that needs to get a little bit better. But I think 85% of the time, at least it's, uh, it's definitely shooting.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think if you would add up shooting and defense, it would be like 99% of the time those are the two <laughs> swing skills. I think defense is the other big, the other big one people would use that for.
1: I mean, if you sh- could shoot and play defense, you're generally a pretty good basketball player. Yes. Yes.
0: All right. So those rotations, we'll see how they play out. Like I said, Kylo Quinn first sort of domino to fall and setting those staggers and, and then what, where you want to put Richardson and Tobias or sort of the other two. Um, we'll see how that plays out. It, I think, I, and I think we'll, seeing different pairings evaluate early on in the season, like being able to evaluate different pairings will make sense too. They don't need to have that defined, you know, the beginning of November. They need to have that defined by mid-April. So, we'll see. Brett has a, has a lot of tools to work with and they have to sort of t- try to, you know, coax a top 10 offense out of that, which will be, uh, will be a little bit of a challenge unless one of his two or both of his two main stars take a, a, a pretty sizable jump. So.
1: Speaking of Brett, Alan was kind of pumping up the crowd at Xfinity Live at the FanFest event, and Tobias walked onto the stage. So Alan was kind of shouting out Tobias, and he basically said, this guy's going to kill it. He's going to kill it with Ben and Joel and all of these guys. And then I, he paused for one second. He says, You know who else is – I forget exactly what he said, but at one point he called Brett Brown a killer. (laughs) He's like – he called – it was basically like I'm a killer and I understand that he's one too. And He was like that's my guy and that got a pretty good pop from the crowd and I I, I enjoyed that. I did not expect Alan to say that. I will say I
0: think Alan has grown well into his role as ambassador. Like he could always pump up the crowd. But he seems like he's embraced that role a lot. It's not no longer like bring Allen back to juice up the crowd because the team's horrible and you need a reason to go to the game. Like it feels a little more natural now that the team is good again, I guess is what I'd say.
1: Yeah, now the team is good. He sits courtside now, which is yes. way better than him up in the box. just up in the box, which, yep. I mean, to be fair, I think he was up in the box because the team was getting their ass kicked and he didn't feel like being down the court. But, yeah, when he – uh there was a game a couple years ago when they played the the Heat. I think it was the game they lost to the Heat, but it was a really good fourth quarter. And I I can't really tell you too much of what happened in the fourth quarter because I know Dwayne Wade played really well that game, but I was just watching Iverson react to everything. And he had some good moments this year too. I remember after one of the Toronto games, he was just – or during one of the Toronto blowouts, he was kind of uh, – he was having fun with Deshaun Jackson and a few other people down there. But, yeah, he he, he certainly has grown into that role.
0: All right. I think uh, I uh that's probably all we got for today. You got anything else on your mind? No, not really. All right. Good enough for me. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on. We will get to a few more of these here in the coming weeks. Uh, but take care. See you, man. Did I attract clientele My mic check is life or death Breathing the sniper's breath I exhale the yellow smoke of Buddha through righteous steps